Hi, I'm Barnaby Cook, and welcome to The Exit Plan, a podcast for business owners that are interested in learning more about how to sell their business. Each episode, I interview someone who's bought or sold a business, either a creative agency or a production company. The conversation gets under the skin of why they wanted to sell or were looking to acquire, how the deal was structured, how they agreed upon a valuation, and what lessons they learned along the way. Here we go. Today's episode is with Danny Bull, a fascinating guy who started out in business by making and selling makeshift catapults when he was at school, which Guy McSpelled. After he left school, he cut his teeth as a developer in e-commerce in the very early days of the internet, before founding his own digital agency, DigiNut, which he ran successfully for 12 years before selling the business to CI Group in 2018, at the same time as going through a divorce. Not something he would recommend. He has lots of really useful real-world advice on valuation multiples, the importance of getting the right legal advice during the deal, and the reality of working for someone else after you've sold your business. Since exiting, Danny has been up to lots of different things, including founding a snacks company that is on a mission to end child poverty. He's working as a fractional CTO and non-executive director, and is also a consulting partner at Cactus, running the Freelance to Founder program. Hope you enjoy our conversation. I just normally start these by asking guests to tell me a little bit about themselves and their career. Okay, gosh, where to start on a question like that? I sort of always go back to, weirdly, my childhood, actually. And as I was preparing for this, I was thinking about that, about how sort of growing up in the way I did made me want to, always made me want to start my own business. I remember having, we didn't have much money when I grew up, so I had to sort of fend for myself a lot of the time. And I remember I used to make catapults. So I, in up in the Northeast, we had these beds, which were awful. They're like, they had springs in them. They were these little sort of V-springs. Then you had hundreds of these V-springs connected together for the sort of base of the bed. And obviously you had a mattress on top. And I remember my dad chucked one out once. I took all these springs and I made a load of catapults with them. So I got like the backs of shoes for the sort of back of the, the catapult bit where you put the stone. My dad was a, a nurse. So he used to bring back the tourniquets from the hospital. So you know the things that you put around your I'm arms. Not good with needles. <laughs> These are those um, plastic bits that are really strong. So he used to take two of those, back of a shoe, made a handle for the catapults, and I must have made about 300 of these things, and then I sold them at school. So I'd get money that way. I did get expelled for that, I have to say, because uh, we had, had loads of people taking these catapults and breaking windows at school. So basically, I wasn't allowed to sell them anymore, and they expelled me for a bit. Which I kind of, yeah, I wasn't too fussed about. But yeah, so I used to do stuff like that when I was a kid. I used to used to also do sort of signs for local businesses. Some of them dodgy, some of them not so much. And then sort of always got and went into my career, kind of always thinking I would set up a business. But in terms of my adult life, started in agency land early on. I cut my teeth as a developer. So I learned how to program for a software business, actually. And that software business... I'm old now. I don't know how old you are, Bonnaby, but I'm um I'm getting on a bit. So I at the time when I started my career, it was it was just as the internet was taking off. It wasn't established in any way. This this software company where I started my career as a 19-year-old placement, graduate placement student, they put all their money on installable e-commerce. So, you know, this is before the time when 
buying online was ubiquitous and they actually had a product and they had lots of clients and they were getting paid millions of pounds a year to basically create a catalog that you install on your computer through a disc, which is, you know, is unheard of these days. And they basically thought that's the way it was going to go. And that was a really interesting way to start your career. I actually then, in my final year, took that concept of, is it going to be, you know, installed software or is it going to go internet in terms of commerce? And I did my dissertation on that. And it was a really interesting piece of work. I, I managed to get a first for it because I was so into it. And even I, as a 20, 21-year-old student, basically came out of that piece of research and said, people are going to want to buy online. They're, they're going to want to buy through a browser. They're not going to want to install software. But obviously, 25 years ago, you know, 25, 30 years ago, people weren't sure. That company eventually went under. <laughs> but it was an interesting lesson. In, and a really perfect place to start my career. So like I say, so I got that understanding of e-commerce, got started being, you know, started as a developer and just sort of made my way through agency land after that. Worked for some of the bigger agencies like DDB, Wonderman, some mid-sized agencies, did that for about 12 years and then decided I didn't like the bureaucracy and the bullshit of those agencies that I was working for. You know, there's, there's some great work comes out of them but it's quite difficult to do anything really interesting um so i sort of uh, set up on my own as a oddly as a freelancer and that's something i'm sort of continuing now and trying to help people but i started as a freelancer started taking on other freelancers started taking on full-time people and basically just just grew my business that way so yeah just sort of kept a foot in the agency world and that's how i started my business when was that when was it founded Good question. That would have been, I think it was September 2006, if I remember rightly. Yeah. Okay. And then could you sort of tell me a bit about the growth of your agency and what type of work you were doing and the sort of clients you were working with? We were very specialist in terms of, well, I wouldn't say very specialist, but we were reasonably specialist in that. We were, you know, I'm a geek. I'm a, like I say, I was a developer. So, you know, the technical side of things was always a place to start for us. So we ended up specializing in quite technical user experience design. Uh, we weren't necessarily one of those creative agencies, although we did do some creative work. And then we really focused on looking at how does analytics inform what people are doing on a web app, on a mobile app, that sort of thing. Then essentially taking care of that quite technical user experience design based on analytics and then doing quite complex web builds. So we do, you know, complex web applications whereby there was some form of API integration or quite technical functionality. We do mobile application builds. Quite often we do integrations with existing systems like CRMs, stuff like that. We built a variety of different tools of our own. For example, we built, built one of the first, we call it the social hoover. So basically just, and this was when you, you, know, you were allowed to access a lot of the social media Fire hoses back then. Uh, so we built a social hoover that allowed us to suck up as much social data as possible. We had a project for Virgin Money that we started that project on. That was really interesting. I think at one point for Virgin Money, it was when they were sponsoring the London Marathon. They wanted to do a, it was basically like a diary of you as an athlete training for the London Marathon. And what you were doing, you would post everything you were doing on sort of various social media sites, and we would suck that information in. Um, and at one point we were doing, I think, 10,000 posts a day on that particular hashtag. So it was a really popular, popular tool. I and mean, obviously we had to create a system that pulled in all of that 
rich social media data, allowed them to moderate it. I think we did it through a Drupal backend back then. Uh, but we built the tool that allowed us to go out and soak up all that social data. And then we sort of used those kind of tools and sold them onto other agencies so, uh, and other companies. So in terms of the work we did, it was a mix of that kind of technical work. And in terms of the clients we had, it would be a range of clients anywhere from other agencies. So we used to do a lot of work for other agencies with my background in agencies. And it was an interesting time back then because a lot of the agencies would say they were full service when actually they weren't really. And I've got so many interesting stories about that. My my favorite probably was, I think it might, it might have been Ogilvy. As we started getting bigger, we not only were doing work for other agencies, but we then started competing against other agencies. So we'd find ourselves going up against those agencies we were work, working for. And I remember one time we went for a really interesting web app project. I think it might have been for, for a gaming company like AA Sports or someone like that on one of their FIFA games. And I think we were going up against someone like Ogilvy. We, as a smaller agency, came in at, I think we came in at about 75,000 for the project. Ogilvy came in at about 250,000. They won it. And I've had, I've had a very, various conversations about this since then, including a really interesting one with Rory Sutherland a few weeks ago, who's one of my heroes, behavioral science guy. He's, he, he works for Ogilvy. He set up their behavioral science. And, you know, that whole thing about price, that was a big lesson for me. You know, we, we thought we were going in at a reasonable price so that we could win the work. You know, it turns out if you go in at a higher price, it, it can sometimes be valued more. And there's a bit of behavioral science behind that. And I, you know, I had a, had a chuckle with Rory Sutherland about that, but it's a really interesting one. But when that, what then happened after that? I'm sure Ogilvy didn't spend any more than you would have spent on it. On actually but the funny it. thing was, they came to us to ask us to see if we wanted to build it. So we kind of, we had this thing where, you know, it was just a really bizarre thing of going for the work, losing it, and then being asked if we wanted to build it. We didn't build it with them in the end because we couldn't make the figures work, but it was a big lesson, that one. Yeah, what sort of size did you get to in terms of staff members and turnover? What was the sort of growth over the 15 years or so that you had your agency? We were still reasonably small. We were something like 15 in size. So we didn't get to a huge size, but we were able to do quite a large amount of work. I think because we had quite specialist team members, people who knew what they were doing and had skin in the game, you know, have you gone again? So yeah, in terms of the size, we weren't that big. We got to about 15 in total, but we we were set up slightly differently than other agencies. And again, going back to my experience working with other agencies, what they tend to do, and I think it's still the case, particularly the bigger ones, is they'll have a few um, really experienced you know, senior members of the team. They'll have a really experienced founder. And those are the people clients will see early on in the relationship to win the work and, you know, get the buy-in. And then you'll get handed over to a, to a bunch of juniors, which I think is, you know, it's great because it, it keeps the industry moving. It keeps people learning and gets people, you know, the experience they need. But we didn't have that model. And I, I specifically didn't want that model because it's a trick you want to do on it with a low number of staff members. So all of our people were quite experienced, you know, and I would say there wasn't anybody who didn't have less than eight years experience in our company. So, you know, if you've got 15 people with eight years experience plus, you can do a hell of a lot more work than you could if you've got, you know, 30 juniors and 10 experienced people. So we were reasonably small, but we managed to do a lot of work. And again, I think that's why some of the bigger agencies came to us for for still doing the work that they couldn't do. 
So that was really interesting. I think project size, we tended to sort of our sweet spot was between 75 and 150,000 in the end. We still did projects in and around that, but it was those, you know, like I say, quite specialist UX builds with technical integrations that we would usually do. So yeah, not huge. And when we came to sell, we were, again, probably about sort of 13, 14, 15. And we went, we were bought by a bigger agency who already had a technical team that was quite big. The work they were doing was really interesting. I wouldn't say they didn't have that many really experienced people. Again, they had quite junior people. And I think what appealed about us is we had that senior experience that they could just buy, plug into their team and sort of add to what they already had. So again, we came into a team of that size and then we brought in our clients and all the work we were already doing, but then we were able to sell the skill sets and the, the types of work onto the clients of that bigger organization. You know, and they were working with some quite heavy hitters, people like Royal Caribbean, Adobe, Microsoft, all those guys. And it was quite a nice, just, you know, we were able to plug our team in quite easily and then sell some of those services that we had that they didn't have. So yeah, it worked out quite well. How did it all come about? Were you looking to sell or did you get an approach and then consider it when it came up? About a year before we started the process of that led to the sale. We had a few approaches from other people sort of coming direct either through LinkedIn or some of the content we were posting and working on. And a really interesting company came to us who were based in King's Cross. And we got to, uh, they just approached us out of nowhere. We weren't really expecting it. A guy who, you know, through a guy who I'm still contacted, you know, in contact with who was an M&A guy. And they basically came to us and said, we, we need a team like yours. We're interested. I think we got two terms on that one, but that fell through in the end. It didn't go anywhere, but then around the time, you know, in my personal life, I was married for a long time and, you know, I've got kids and we started going through a few problems, ended up, you know, in a start of a process of going through a divorce then. And at that time, it was kind of like we'd been approached. It felt things were getting a little bit, you know, after 12 years, they were getting a little bit, I wouldn't say stale, but maybe a little bit of boredom was creeping in for me alongside going through, you know, separating from the person I'd been with for a really long time be feeling a little bit of boredom. I sort of went and had a few chats with a few people in the industry, really well-connected guy called Spencer Gallagher, who I'm doing a bit of work for now in his community. And just had had an off-the-record chat and said, this is where I am. This is what's happening in life. And he put me in touch with a really lovely guy called David Blois. He's M&A. That was what led to the sale. He's a really interesting character, David. And I, I didn't actually hold out much hope in the beginning because... I didn't sort of feel like he had agency experience because he sort of came in a tie, you know, a suit and tie. And he's a really interesting character, the way he talks about agency land. And I, I sort of really didn't hold out much hope, but he's super connected, knows so many people. And in the end, you know, he had like three or four agencies interested in us. So, yeah, it was an interesting experience and a, one I'll never forget, uh, you know, not least because it was at a really informative part of my life but just the process of going through a a journey like that is quite an interesting one in itself well i was going to ask about the ownership structure is it are you 100 percent owner there's another interesting story i um yeah you know at the time when you do i don't know how many other people have gone through this but at the time when you're setting up a company and you're married or you're with a partner i think was i married i mean we may not have been married at the time but our accountant at the time i remember going into it thinking Leaving a full-time job, it's the first time I've ever done anything like this. The idea was to go freelance for a while and see what happened. I'd already started doing a bit of freelance work and had been approached by a few people to do some work for them. 
I started out as a freelancer, you know, and um, I always thought I'd want to build it up into something. I'd want it to go somewhere. So I set it up as a business from the outset, limited company. I got an accountant because I just didn't want to be doing that. You know, again, it feels like I'm so old, but, you know, it's a lot, it's a fairly long time ago, this. And there are so many tools out there that can help you do pretty much anything you want these days. And, you know, and just look at things like AI coming out now. We didn't have things, you know, things like Zero and um, stuff like that weren't as advanced as they were. So I sort of didn't want to take on that hassle and pain of having to do my own accountancy and, you know, keep everything on track. And I just felt like that was from the outset, I felt like that was going to be a large amount of work. So I specifically got an accountant in. Hey, basically, they just said, you, you keep all your receipts, put them in a big envelope, send them to us at the end of the quarter, and we'll deal with everything. And that was a godsend. So anyone doing this, I'd highly, highly recommend that. So yeah, so the structure, he, he, he advised our structure as giving some to my wife, basically, to my partner, um, who did play a big part in the business in the early days, helped with a variety of different things. So I had 75%, my partner had 25%, and that's kind of what you, you get advised to do, whether or not that was a good idea. 16 years later, going through a divorce, I don't know. but <laughs> So the divorce happened before the sale or what was the same timing? time? Same time. Yeah. Wow. That's a lot to go through. It was, it was uh, tricky. Sort of personal and professional, big changes all happening at the same time. So I'm kind of interested just in that first deal, like what you got to heads of terms with them. Like what was it that, that made the deal fall apart? I guess you never know in situations like this where the real reasons are. My feeling was that the guy who was sort of responsible for finding them partnerships or finding them deals, I think he had a lot of understanding of the industry and you know our technical and creative skills. And he also had a, a lot of understanding of their skills. I think he could see a really good match. I think he saw how we could slot in. And I didn't have much in the way of correspondence with the people who ran the business. And I don't think they saw the same thing that my good feeling would be they saw something different to what he saw, whether or not it would have worked out one way or the other, I don't know, but that's, that's my impression. Again, you never quite know. Okay, that's interesting. So it was actually a sort of intermediary almost, or someone who was a little bit outside the business who kind of put the deal together, but the actual founders of that of the acquirer didn't maybe didn't get involved early enough, or it got a bit too far, perhaps. So with the eventual acquirer, can you just talk me through that process? Like, how did you go about agreeing terms and what was the back and forth like on valuation and deal structure you know you don't have to kind of give me numbers but just sort of you know the structure of the deal is you know again that was it was one of the most interesting processes I've ever been through and along aside from the fact it was you know I was going through a divorce at the same time and it was really stressful doing you know I think I did three major life things in in about the space of six months move house you know we had a lovely big house together had to leave that but rented a little cottage you know left my kids went through the process of selling the business uh going through a divorce so you know going through all of those things at one time is not something i'd recommend on my worst enemy but it's part of life isn't it it's one of those things you have to go through setting that stuff aside the actual sale itself i found super interesting one of the main reasons being again i'm sort of i'm very conscious of when I don't know something, I know when I don't know what I don't know. And I always think if you're in a situation where you don't have experience of something, don't try and fake it. Don't, you know, don't try to either bullshit your way through or try to learn the skills you need in a, in a short space of time. 
So just like in the beginning, when I didn't really understand the whole accountancy side of things, I said, I'm going to get an accountant because they're skilled at that. I really wanted to get someone who is really good at, you know, M&A in terms of solicitor. So again, David, the guy who helped me sell, recommended this just ferocious lady solicitor who I was in awe of during that process. She was, you look at most people and you, you, you just can't tell what they're going to be like in business. And she was one of those people who you sort of look at and think, I, I'm not sure how this is going to go down. But she was incredible. So on it in terms of her understanding of obviously the law, being a, being a solicitor, but that the M&A side of things. And it was a joy to watch. And, you know, we, um, the guy who, you know, who runs the companies that bought mine, he hired a really big law firm in the city. They had uh, huge offices, you know, two or three floors. And they would take us there each time. I think as a bit of a, we're going to try and intimidate you here sort of thing. And they'd have two or three lawyers sitting around the table. And she just ate them for breakfast. You know, it was like, it was like watching a master at work. And, you know, they would try to do things like um, either not put enough clarity in some of the clauses that were in the contract or try to sneak things in. And every single time she just got them and she just, she basically just ran circles around them. So that part of the experience was really joyful. And I think I'd recommend anybody going through something like that to get the best person they can. They can. And it does, I wouldn't say it has to be a big company. It doesn't at all. I think just go on recommendations. And if anyone is going through it, I can recommend that lady. It's, uh, yeah, it was a joy to watch. It's interesting, though, because my experience of M&A at this level is, isn't so sort of aggressive, maybe, or, you know, I don't know, people don't necessarily hire massive law firms. Like often, it's just, it's a practical deal that makes sense for both sides. It's pretty sort of, you know, obviously, you get some solicitors involved, and there is some back and forth on the legals, and everyone needs to be protected, and it needs to be done properly. But it sounds like your experience was quite kind of, uh, you know, a little bit like corporate almost. Or yeah, and I've experienced that myself. It was a little bit corporate, like I say. My, you know, my solicitor wasn't very wasn't corporate. I wouldn't say she ran. She, you know, at the time ran her own law firm, reasonably small, but again, really capable and knowledgeable people around her. So even her support team were really good. Uh, she then started working. I think they got bought by a bigger law firm. And certainly the, you know, the, the company that bought mine, they did use a big law firm. But what I would say to that is, having gone through that experience myself and talked to other people, I think I'm in the minority of people who've lasted first the three years. And second, I'm in the minority of not being taken, not having an experience where something has gone wrong. So for example, I knew this lady who sold a really successful SEO firm for you know, quite a big amount of money. And her deal was backloaded. So she was, you know, like me, she got a chunk up front. Like most people, you get a chunk up front and then you have an earn out and you earn a certain amount of over that time. Mine was slightly more loaded up front in terms of the amount of money we got and then earn out over time. And, you know, this friend of mine, she went through the process and her deal was heavy loaded on the back end. She was expecting a big payout. Now, because of the way the deal was structured and the contract, she lost a lot of money during that deal. And I would say, that's probably in relation to what you were just saying. And if you haven't got everything tight at the start, you're never going to, if something goes wrong during the process, you're not going to be covered legally. And I would just say it's worth the hassle. If, you know, because it's going to be a hassle anyway, it's going to be a difficult thing to do. It's worth that upfront work to get someone who knows what they're doing, who's got experience in m and And, you know, everybody wants a deal like that to be, you know, comfortable. And you want to go into a relationship with the new founders and the new owners in a way whereby you want to grow even more. But in, unless you've got 
the right amount of you know support and the right agreements in your contract, you run the risk of something going wrong later down the line. And I've since spoken to a lot of people where that's happened. So I would say get it agreed and get it agreed properly up front. Yeah, I just think it's not the right way to do it as an acquirer to sort of try and sneak things into clauses and make them deliberately vague and try and screw over the person that you're buying it from because you've got to work with that person. And, you know, there's going to be an earn out of some sort. And I don't know, it's yeah, it's interesting to hear that that that, that stuff happens and people obviously need to watch out mm-hmm. for it. I just don't see the benefit for but either side of trying to be sneaky. Honestly. No, I'd, I'd agree. And nobody wants that. And again, I think if you can find someone who doesn't do that, you're probably in the minority. But I, I do think there's a societal, you know, psychology behind how people treat each other in business. Yeah, I've not had any, I've not had anyone not go through something under the guise of this is all about business. It's nothing personal. People will do some really shitty things to other people. And I think there's a, it's a wider problem than just saying, you know, it's not just contained to being bought by somebody else. I think there's a huge amount of underhand things going on in, in business in the name of business. And I think it's such a shame because it doesn't need to be like that. You know, it's, um, and, and as you say, people will perform better if they're treated well. Yeah. Maybe I'm just naive and expect people to be honest. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know it's the same thing, but unfortunately it rarely works that way. And again, going through the process, there were some parts where it was difficult because I would say the first year and a half of my earnout was was good and positive. Second year and a half was quite challenging, I found. I mean, there's probably a number of reasons for that. But at different times, you know, I kept thinking, uh, is something going to happen in, you know, of that nature? But fortunately, I was able to go back to whenever I thought anything like that might happen, I was able to go back to, you know, a very clear contract and a very, again, because I had that help for someone coming along saying, no, you're not going to get this close in or this close needs to be changed to better protect my client. And again, I'd, I'd say go through that. So yeah, really interesting process. Really loved working with the solicitor I had. In terms of sort of other parts of that, you know, you mentioned um, the deal itself. We were, I think we got in the end around six times profit, which is quite good. Agencies tend to get anywhere between a four, four and a half and seven, I think. So we got towards the higher end, which is really great. You know, I've got a few friends, you know, going through that process at the minute. They're, you know, they're getting sort of four or five, some of them. And I think we did okay from that. And again, really enjoyed it. You know, I'd do it again if I could. Probably, you know, maybe try and find someone a bit better suited in terms of, you know, some of the skill sets. But yeah, really interesting process to go through. And it feels like the industry is still quite buoyant on that front. You know, there are a lot of people doing a lot of interesting things. And I think thankfully, we're moving away from agencies always trying to be, you know, say their full service. I think that collaboration in the industry is better than it's ever been before. And it's interesting to see where we're going, particularly with the advent of things like AI and, you know, that's disrupting things a bit. But yes. What was it like for you during that earnout period? Because obviously set up your own business and then suddenly you go into having a boss, having targets to hit. How was that? Yeah, it was interesting. <laughs> yeah, like being in a relationship. I think for me personally, I do struggle with having a boss. Not in the sense that, you know, it's not that I don't necessarily feel like I can't be told what to do. That's not it at all. But it's like a lot of relationships or where if you're in synergy with someone and, you know, if you both sort of have similar types of goals and aspirations and aims, then I think it can work really well. But when you've got differences in where you want the direction of the business to go, and, you know, I spent 12 years running my own business, so I had my own thoughts and feelings on where it should go. 
And then when you're coming into another established business, who also have done their own thing for, I think, you know, CI, the company that bought mine were 23 years old. So you've both had your ways of doing things, just like coming into any kind of relationship. You both sort of set in your ways in that front. And I think it's really difficult and probably it doesn't happen often that you just align in terms of your synergy and direction. I reckon that probably doesn't happen that often. So you've always got that challenge. And, you know, you do butt heads a little at times, you know, at the times when I sort of felt like I didn't agree with the direction. It's a case of getting on with it and trying to do the best you can with what you've, you've been given and what you've got. And again, you know, that company's a really successful company. So I don't fault them for their direction. But my advice on that front would be try to find someone that's as aligned as you are. And not only, in fact, I would say this, your own feelings and your own experience come secondary to if you do find someone that's aligned with what you're aligned to and you have the same kind of goals, the combined business will do better. You know, you'll find that the business does better than the individuals and that's really where it should go. That's what should be the main consideration. While I've got you here, I just wanted to let you know a little bit about me. After having acquired a TV commercials production company earlier this year, I'm currently doing a roll-up in the video production space and I'm looking for production companies to join my group. If you don't think you're quite there yet, I'm also spending some of my time advising smaller businesses on business growth and exit planning. So if you want to chat to me about that, drop me a line on LinkedIn. Here endeth the advert. My next question really was actually going to be about the team and the sort of cultural fit, because I think that's such an important part of any acquisition is that integration of the team. So what was it like for your staff members? I think that's a really good question, actually, the whole cultural fit. And, you know, we definitely, in terms of the culture of the, you know, our team before the sale, again, I mentioned earlier that we had some quite senior people who'd been doing what they're doing for a reasonably long time. We didn't have many juniors. You know, we had a mix of sort of full-time and contract staff, and which sort of meant we could scale up and down at different times. But we always tried to work with people who had a lot of more experience than some of the other agencies. So culturally, we I'd say we were probably a bit older in our views, not necessarily the type of agency that goes out and parties all the time. Although, you know, although I've worked at a few of those in my time, particularly my 20s. So definitely a bit of a cultural cultural difference. And, and I'd say, you know, there was, you know, a, a challenge there going into another agency who, again, are already well established. They had a headquarters out in Oxford, over Oxford way. And, they, you know, we, they had a, an office in London as well. So culturally, they weren't your typical agency either. You know, a lot of agencies, obviously London-based, you know, going out and working hard, playing hard is a big part of the culture. But you had sort of two reasonably different agency cultures coming together. And, you know, we had some challenges. I definitely would say that we had different, different ways of working as well. You know, my view of working is that you hire people who know what they're doing and let them get on with it. You know, it's that whole Steve Jobs adage of we don't hire great people to tell them what to do. We hire great people to so they can tell us what to do. And, you know, that was my way of running the business. And I think that probably didn't go hand in hand with the way the you know, the company that bought ours operate, but we managed to get there in the end. And I think, again, interesting question around the cultural fit because, you know, it was a bigger agency and we had different teams. And even, you know, the way they were set up is it was a group. So you had really different agencies and some of those agencies would do their own thing a lot of the time. Some of them would come together. You know, you had projects where you'd have 
three of the six agencies working on a project or, you know, you could work direct with your own clients. So it was an interesting mix that way. But in terms of the culture, you then had each of the agencies kind of had their own way of working and cultural fit. And then when you came together, it was a challenge at times, but nothing that was insurmountable and nothing that stopped us from doing really great work. And I think that's, again, that's probably one of the most important things. If Even if you have cultural challenges, I think you can still do some really great work. And I'm sure that there are some cultural misalignments that happen where you're not able to do good work, but you know, we were, we were able to circumvent that. I think. Yeah. How long did you stay then after your earnout? out? did, uh, no, it was three years and I did about three and a half years. So yeah, I managed to do the full earnout and stayed around for a bit longer. Yeah. And do you know much about what's happened since you've left? Has it kind of continued to thrive? Yeah, I still do a bit of contracting work with the team and still up to speed on some of the things that are happening. Not everything. You know, as I was saying before, when you've been in operation for that length of time, particularly when you're talking 15, 20 years plus, um, you have your way of working and the likelihood of that changing is probably not high. I think you're pretty embedded by that point. And it's like us as individuals, isn't it? You know, if you've been in, you've been living life your way for a long period of time, the chances of you changing that way of being or that way of working is probably quite slim. Albeit, I think it's possible, you know, I'm sort of, I'm big into over the last couple of years, I've been looking at my own way of not only working, but my own way of being and, you know, the psychology behind where I've come to in my life and the decisions I make and more importantly, where I'm going next. And, you know, my partner's a really great leadership coach. She works with top CEOs and top CEO teams. And I'm fascinated by what we tell ourselves and how our, our experience has shaped the way we are and how that then impacts us in business. And, you know, one of the things that I've noticed is we put a lot of limitations on ourselves that we believe are fact. Um, you know, it's like, you know, I can't possibly do this because either never done it before or my conditioning as a child has told me that I'm only capable of reaching this point. And, and I think that's a really interesting place for individuals and companies to look, looking at, you know, where you've come to in your life, the things you've achieved and where you can go next. I'm playing with that at the moment, having come out with the earnout last year, and it's uh, that's been a really interesting journey. Sounds very exciting. So similar to, to myself, actually, I sort of exited a year and a half ago and have been through a similar sort of process of who am I? What are my skills? What have I learned? What are my strengths and weaknesses? And yeah, it's quite useful to have a period of sort of reflection on that, I think. And selling, you know, exiting a business is, it seems like a good time to do that. Mm, definitely. I was going to ask about the senior leadership team. And since you've left, like what has the acquirer done to kind of keep them tied in? Were they tied in at all before you sold? Because I guess that's always a concern, right, for an acquirer is the founder leaves. And then if the senior leadership team leave as well, that's, you know, it's a risk. Yeah, that's a good question. And actually, the most senior people of my team left, you know, one or two of their own accord. And then just naturally over time, I didn't quite anticipate, you know, three years is quite a long time. And I think if you manage to keep the majority of people during that time, you're doing a good thing. So yeah, it's been interesting that, and I think there's a natural inclination for people to want to leave when change happens anyway, but over time, yeah, we've lost some of the more senior people. But uh, as you were saying that, the sort of my sort of mind went to not just the team that we brought on, but the team that 
you know, I worked with. So I become part of the management team at the group. And that was an interesting dynamic as well, you know, coming into as a newbie to an already existing management team. And that team has changed over the years I was there. And I think it's still in flux. But I think it's a challenge for the acquirer. I never quite understood or really thought about what it might be like for companies buying other, you know, other companies. But it's a big challenge and it's not an easy one, you know, bringing in new teams and getting them bedded in for a start. But equally, how that management team dynamic works. And I found that a fascinating part of the process as well. One, just trying to get, you know, embed myself into that team and add some value and then seeing how the dynamics play out over a number of years. And again, that team has changed quite a lot over that period of time and will no doubt continue to change. But it's an interesting challenge for companies, particularly agencies, because you want to keep growing, you want to keep adding to your team, but equally you need that stability to keep the business going. And then we had the pandemic, you know, it's, I think we were a year in to the three years and the pandemic hit. And that, had a, that played a huge part, I think, in transitions and change. And I know a lot of agencies, you know, some agencies didn't survive it. Some agencies thrived. And that's just a super interesting area as well. So looking back on the whole experience, is there anything you would have done differently? I don't know. I can't say that I honestly would have done anything differently without the hindsight. With hindsight, you know, we can all talk about what we do. I think probably not because I wouldn't have had that knowledge. But if I was going into it again with armed with the knowledge of what I know now, I would probably do quite a few things differently. I think I'd focus, spend a lot of time on, you know, researching the company that would want to buy us, um, really trying to understand if there's a cultural fit, as you said before, Barnaby, and really trying to understand, you know, how well it might work going into that company and maybe doing some projections of my own. Not least because of the performance of the business, but equally trying to protect people, not only in the team that's being bought, but also on the team that you know you have to go into. I sort of was quite acutely aware of people in this process, which I hadn't anticipated how that would feel for me. You know, I always cared about the people that worked for my business. That wasn't in ever in any doubt. But having seen the impact that a you know at a move like this has on people. I probably would consider that a lot more. Uh, so again, I'd want the cultural fit to be as best as it can be. And I'd want that one. I'd want people to benefit from the partnership because it is a partnership at the end of the day, like any of these things, it should be treated as a partnership, not just numbers on a balance sheet. So yeah, I mean, the, you know, the audience for the podcast is agency founders that are maybe at the very beginning of their journey of thinking about selling. So any sort of words of advice from someone who's been through it. And I guess, what should they be thinking about now in terms of preparing, making their business attractive for a potential acquirer? That's a really great question. Other than don't get divorced while selling your business or <laughs> selling your agency, that would be my main piece of advice. But I think definitely as much as you can, and as much as it's difficult while you're trying to run an agency, get everything as sort of in line and as smooth running as possible and that includes your processes within your agency get the team running as smoothly as you possibly can and equally get things like your accounts in order and you know obviously you know get goes without saying get your profit as high and as consistent as you possibly can I mean, if that means you know spending a year cutting your costs um spending a year you know maybe looking at 
who's working in the team and who isn't, who's performing well and who isn't. You know, I'm not saying sack your team members, but it, you're running a business at the end of the day. And the people are buying you who are going to look at stuff like that. And if you are as um, smooth running as possible, and if you have everything in place so there are no questions in terms of your accounts and your processes and all of that, I think that's going to stand you in really good stead. Again, having gone through that experience, there were parts of our accounts that were picked out that I just didn't anticipate. You know, they were looking at profitability per client, per customer, that sort of thing. That's not something I'd really focused on while running the agency. So again, if you are going through that process, I would think about those things because that's what an acquirer is going to come in and do. And equally, if you're, you know, if you can, if you've got the time, if you've got the inclination, get the help of someone who's been there and done that. Like I said before, you know, I got some great advice in the beginning, but there are, the landscape has changed quite a lot. And, you know, people like Spencer Gallagher, who I'm doing some work for at the minute, and other M&A firms, they are not only offering the M&A service, but they will work with you. They will spend three months, six months a year working with you on these things as part of their service to you. Um, you know, you don't have, to, I don't think you have to pay them for that side of things, but obviously they pay them in terms of when the sale comes through, but they will work with you for that period of time to say, to look at your processes, look at your accounts, look at your setup and see, this is how we can help you be, you know, as optimally set up as possible. So I definitely let's say go through that process. That would be one of my main recommendations and just be prepared for a bit of a slog. It's, um, I think from the very first call I had to the signing on the dotted line, I think it was two years that, that, you know, that lasted. So quite often, I think you're going to have to go through a, a quite a lengthy process. So be as in good shape as you possibly can, both physically and mentally for that process. That's great. And that, I think we've covered pretty much everything I want to say. Is there anything else you wanted to add? No, I, I think the only thing I'd probably want to say is it's life after agency and life after running your own thing is quite interesting. And I, you know, I'd love to hear from other founders as well what experience they've had. But it's that time of, as you said, going through the experience of running your own company and exiting. It's a really interesting one. And, you, and I think you come out of it with a fresh perspective on things. So I would say, even though it's a challenge and it can be difficult at times, when you come out the other side, I think it's a real feeling to be there and to have done it uh, and to then move on to the next thing. So yeah, for anyone going through it, I think there is light at the end of the tunnel if it's feeling difficult. Thank you very much for listening to the Exit Plan podcast. If you enjoyed it, please leave us a review to help other people find us. If you're wondering what's next for you and your business and want to chat about an exit plan, connect with me on LinkedIn.